You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Amazon's got everything you need for your dorm, from everyday essentials and school supplies to clothes and decor to bedding for power naps and regular naps too. Save on all things college at Amazon. podcast that is not your history class with me, your proud host, Katie Charlewood, current isolationist and reader of books. So, I know what you're thinking, isolationist, that's a weird way to start the show. Well, I am currently in isolation because, dun 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 dun, dun I was flagged as a close contact for someone who tested positive for COVID. I'm like, shit, so there I am two masks, my glasses, and a visor. So it's, uh, my entire face is definitely, you know, covered. I've got gloves, the whole shebang. We go through the drive-thru, I get tested, I feel like I'm drowning, but it's all good. It's all for the greater good. And they tell me that regardless of my first test result, I have to isolate for 10 days. And I'm like, fuck. Not only is this one of the busier times of the year where I work, but also, it is a bank holiday and it is my daughter's fifth birthday. So, uh, first test comes back negative, but I still have to act like I'm isolating. So I got to see my daughter on her birthday because um, I'm in a separate house right now. And it, it just kind of sucks because I couldn't hug my daughter on her birthday. I couldn't, you know, do cuddle time with the kids or snuggle on the couch and watch a movie and, you know, just the, the the basic normal stuff that you want to do with your kids, you know? But luckily, my first test was negative, so I gotta get retested. Um, if I get, if, and if the second test comes up negative, then yay, I can go back to work. But for the next week, I am isolating, which is pain in the arse. But if having to stay away from other people is the worst part of this scenario for me, then I think I'm getting off pretty fucking lightly, you know? 
And so, to the topic of today's story. And it's Pride Month, and in fairness, I really shouldn't need a reason to pick a queer person to talk about. Like, I think we should be telling stories of LGBTQ plus people all year round. Because, like, we really need to be more inclusive about a bunch of stuff, to be honest. I really shouldn't need an excuse to talk about a queer person. But it is Pride Month! And so I decided for the rest of the month we're going to talk about LGBTQ plus people and events and other stuff because I want to. Because it's my podcast and I'll say what I want to. Oh, and the subject of today's story was actually requested by somebody on my TikTok. And honestly, it was such a good choice. Like, So, we are talking about today, the life of Julie Dominier, also known as Mademoiselle Maupin. The bisexual badass who honestly, honestly, I think I could do like a three-part series about her on TikTok. She's just so amazing. But I don't know what you're thinking. Quit your jibber-jabber and fact you and let's get our source on, okay? So we have The Real Life of Julie Daubigny by Kelly Gardner. Julie Daubigny or One of the Coolest Gals Nestry by CJ Evans. And then, of course, we have TheCultureTrip.com, Encyclopedia.com. And the rake.com. So we're going to start at the beginning. And lest we forget, women of the past, no matter how erudite and exciting they are, a lot of the times their early life we don't have a lot of information on. And this is also the case with Julie Daubigny. So, which I've probably pronounced wrong and I look forward to being consistently reminded. So the origins of Julie are... Of Julie? Julie? Julie. Julie Daubigny entered the world somewhere between 1670 and 1673. Most sources usually use 1673, but there is a discrepancy there because women in the past. Her father, Gaston Daubigny, of course it's a Gaston, he was a secretary to Louis de Leronguis, Comte d'Armagnac, the master of the horse for King Louis Fourteenth. Like I said, not a lot is known about Julie when she's wee. But, so Gaston, her father, he would train the court pages in preparation for their, you know, their life at court. So while he was training the pages, the boys, he would also train his daughter, probably because, you know, he thought, why am I going to train someone else to teach her when I can teach her myself? Probably. So these pages, they would learn reading, drawing, literature, and of course, fencing. Now, this is going to come in handy for Julie a wee bit in the future, but we'll get to that. Oh, and also, small possibility, she was also dressing in boys' clothing, but eh, it's very much a perhaps. And if you're training someone to duel, you know, it was probably handier having her dressed in proper attire. You know what I mean? By the time she's 14, she ends up in this affair with her dad's boss. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and just assume that she didn't have that much say in the matter. Uh, the Count Damagnac, who, you know, that's the thing, generally any member of the aristocracy would have a mistress. It was very common at the time, it was very normal. You know, and it was probably at the point where it was actually expected. So it wasn't surprising that he had a mistress, especially a mistress who was, you know, still a fucking child, but you know, we're not going to get into that. It was the past. Just because they did things differently doesn't mean I can't be disgusted with it. And so in general, we think that in order to preserve the reputation of the young Julie, which we think was probably requested, which is presumed to be, you know, urged 
by her father, the Count arranges for young Julie to marry Sieur de Maupin of Saint-Germain-en-Laye. And like, and pretty sharpish after the wedding actually. Pretty sharpish. Her new husband, mm -hmm, he magically receives an administrative position in the south of France. But she stays in Paris with like, I was going to say her mister, but that's incorrect. Wait a minute. If she is the mistress, like she is his mistress, the count's mistress, what is the opposite term? Like, what's the term? If she is the mistress, what is the count? What is the count to her? I don't, what? Anywho, she marries the Sieur de Maupin and the very next day, the day after the wedding, he just manages to get this administrative position and he is sent to Toulouse in the south of France. So he's working away in Toulouse. Madame Maupin, she's actually staying behind in Paris with the Count. So, oh actually, now that she's married, her name is Julie Emily de Maupin. Maupin, 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 Maupin. Uh, you know, I'm probably butchering her name like fuck now actually. But anyway, and there are reports of her going by the name Julia or Emily, but we're just gonna stick with Julie, I think, just to, just to uh, keep us keep us doing well. Julie was, you know, kicking it about in Paris. And Julie, if Julie was any normal member of the aristocracy, generally, this would be sort of the area where the story ends. Has an arranged marriage, continues mistressing. I feel like what it just feels wrong. Because, like, the opposite of mistress is master. But mistress sounds more submissive. It just, I'm sorry, it just, I'm, I know I'm sticking on it, but it's just feeling wrong. So, young Julie, she's... So, around about 1687, Madame de Maupin is growing a little tired of the Count. Or, or he's grown tired with her. Mm. Either way, she becomes involved with the assistant fencing matter, Serran. So, unfortunately, there's this teeny tiny incident where Serran kills a man in an illegal duel and the lieutenant general of police Gabriel Nicolas de la René tries to arrest Serran for you know killing a man in an illegal duel but um you know these two love parts they're like hmm I don't think I'm gonna do this and instead of letting Serran be apprehended by the cops the army instead of letting Serran be apprehended by the authorities the two of them decide to up ship and fuck off. So they flee Paris, they get the hell out of Dodge, and off they flee to Marseille. So as they're journeying south, obviously they need to have income. And surprisingly, they actually do this through legitimate means. They're giving fencing competitions, they're singing, they're doing shows, they're in taverns, they're at local fairs. And reportedly, as they're doing this, Julie was dressed in male clothing. This is generally where we get the records of her, like, cross-dressing. You know, which, in fairness, probably makes more sense. You know, if you're travelling that distances, it was probably easier to wear male clothing than it was female a lot of the time. So, like, it seems very much that it was either a bit, you know, like, haha, I'm in men's clothing, hear me sing, or it was just, like, a more convenient option, you know? Because the whole thing about her dressing in men's clothing is she doesn't hide the fact that she's a woman. She's billed as a woman. She makes no attempt to hide the fact that she's a woman. So, at one point, during a dueling competition, she starts getting heckled. And this dude is like, mm, 
women couldn't possibly duel as well as that. I'm paraphrasing. And she's like, I'll show you a titty croissant. And she opens her blouse, which, surprise, surprise, stuns the man into silence. So when they eventually arrive in Marseille, she joins this opera company run by Pia Gautier. And she's not singing under, like, Madame Le Mapin at this point. She's still singing under her maiden name, Julie Daubigny. By all accounts, Julie is this fantastic opera singer. However, she couldn't read music, but that's not that uncommon. Even now, even though she couldn't read music, she had such a fantastic memory that it didn't really cause her too many problems. And add into that, you know, she's a really good actress, she's talented, she's fucking beautiful. She becomes the it girl in Marseille. She's doing really well. So at some point, the the love affair with Serene, it just fizzles out. And Julie falls in love with another woman. You know, which, shocking for the time. But what is more shocking is the fact that neither of the women had this relationship from the women's parents. And they were like, oh no, fuck this for a game of soldiers. They take the woman and they send her away to a nunnery. That's right. They they put her in the Visitandine convent in Avignon, thinking, haha, they say for her protection. Mm. Julie's like, okay, completely undeterred by the fact that her girlfriend's being chucked in an honorary. Being the badass bisexual dueling diva we know and love, she follows her girlfriend to the convent in Avignon, takes holy vows, disguises herself as a postulant, and enters the nunnery in disguise. And when she gets in there, she finds her best girl and they plot their escape. And then in a crazy random happenstance, the ladies seize an opportunity when an elderly nun passes away. So, you know, they do the the old, you know, the bait and switch. They take the nun corpse and they put it in the bed of her girlfriend. And you think, fair enough, that'll buy you some time. But oh no, she has to take it one fucking step further, doesn't she? Just to add an extra layer. Julie wants to add a little bit of spice. And um, after they place the nun corpse in the bed, Julie sets the building on fire and then the two flee. And the two of them escape the town. Like, she breaks into a nunnery, does a body swap, sets it on fire and steals back her girl. So after this grandest of grand gestures, about three months in, the relationship ends and and this young lady returns to her family. She goes back and Julie is charged. And even though she's not there, a court charges her in absentia, basically. And they try her as a male. And probably because of like a mashup of two things. The first being that it would have shamed the family. Like a known lesbian affair would have shamed, you know, the women in her family. And also, um, and the patriarchy, I mean, especially back then, had trouble thinking that a woman could do anything, especially something like this. So Julie is charged with kidnapping, body snatching, arson, and failing to appear before the tribunal. And she is sentenced to death. And that death is death by fire. I'm Jane Perlez long-time foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. 
but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. And Julie's gone back to her life of singing and dueling and wandering about, you know, working her way back to Paris. And she ends up dueling with a young man, stabbing him through the shoulder with her sword and, you know, kicking his ass. She's, she decides to be the bigger person and helps him with his boo-boo nurses him back to health and they become good friends possibly lovers do we know no do we care no we fucking do not so she is heading back to paris she's got her you know she's got her vision board up she is setting her sights on the paris opera and she's like retraining and stuff so she's refining her craft so near poitiers she meets this old actor called Marichelle to help train her. Unfortunately, that doesn't end well because he's a raging alcoholic and it just takes over his entire life. And Julie does the completely sane and reasonable thing and gets the fuck out of there. So she leaves and takes the opera singer Gabrielle Vincent de Venard as a lover. So when she reaches Paris, she finds out there's a warrant out for her, you know, death. So because this death warrant is always still out in her head, she goes back to Comte Magnac, who somehow, I'd say somehow she convinced him, she convinced him to talk to the king. The count talks to the king. He petitions King Louis XIV for Julie to be fully pardoned. And Louis apparently found the tales of all her exploits fucking hilarious. And he's like, this is good. Yeah, absolutely. Boom, done. You're fine. So Julie gets accepted into the Paris Opera. Although initially she was rejected, she she gets in, gets hired in 1690. I mean, she was talented, we know she was talented. But, you know, she used everything she could at her disposal. She befriends this elderly singer, Bivard, and, you know, Tevinal, her lover. They convince Jean-Nicolas de Francine, master of the king's household, to accept her into the company. And while she's at the Paris Opera, she plays a bunch of roles. You know, she's performing regularly. She's in Panos Athena, Cadmus et Hermione. She starts off singing as a soprano, but then she moves back to her normal um, contralto range. I'll be honest with you, um, I don't know what a contralto is. I'm assuming it's a little bit lower than soprano. Oh, is that what it, is that what just what everybody calls an alto? Because that's like a little bit lower. Not that I'm an alto, I have, I have no range or uh, power. So when she's performing in Paris, she does so under the the name Madame de Mapin because, I mean, that's technically her name. And also, I mean, let's face it, one, we do love a bit of alliteration, and two, all performers in the opera, like all of the ladies who performed in the opera, they would be known as Madame. They would always be referred to as Madame, not Mademoiselle. So while she's in the opera, she takes a bunch of lovers, male, female, whatever tickled her fancy. And so audiences loved her, but like a lot of actors and actresses and um, a lot of the other players, their relationship was somewhat, mm, fractious, 
tempestuous, you know. Um, Louis Galant de Mesnay, he was, by all accounts, a lecherous piece of shit, and he was constantly pestering women members of the troupe. And he also called Julie some kind of slur. Not entirely sure which slur it was, but he was calling her something. So after he's been a total and utter creep to her, and she's like, mm, no thank you, she ends up challenging him to a duo, and the other actors have to like intervene and, you know, defuse the whole situation. But later that night, Julie waits outside the theatre and beats the shit out of him with her cane, steals his watch and steals his snuff box. And the very next day, he comes in and he's like, oh no, I was mugged. Oh, I was mugged by all of these men, these strong men who took me on so many men. And Julie's like, ha no. And she presents all of her trophies from her previous night's endeavours and he is literally laughed off of the stage. And this is something she continues to do in the future because she like take trinkets, trophies, because men would often refuse to admit that they had been beaten in a fencing duel by her. Oh, and Julie apparently falls in love with uh, Fanchon Moreau, who is a singer, but also the mistress of the Grand Dauphin, and is rejected by Moreau. And when she's rejected by Moreau, she tries to end her own life, and, and thankfully, thankfully she doesn't succeed. So in 1695, Julie attends this ball hosted by Philippe, the Duke of Orleans, who's King Louis XIV's brother. And she arrives dressed as a man, and she kisses a young woman on the dance floor. And immediately upon kissing this woman, Julie is challenged to a duel by three men. And naturally, being fucking Julie Daubigny, she accepts. The woman who fears no man, apparently. She's like, fuck it, yeah, I'll take you on. She goes all d'Artagnan on them and decides to take on all three. Wait a minute. I wonder if that was inspired by... No. Three musketeers fight couldn't have been under the moonlight julie takes on all three men by the seine by the seine river not sure if she wounded or killed them all that bit's kind of fuzzy and as we know from before with seine the honor dueling thing was just like not a thing anymore it was very much um fucking illegal and and depending on the circumstances uh you know you could be sentenced to death because a, an honour dueling was basically seen as a challenge to royal authority and everything was supposed to be settled by the king's laws, not stabby stabby. So she has to flee Paris again, so she buggers off to Brussels and becomes the lover, Maximilian Il Emmanuel, the elector of Bavaria and and he she's apparently just too much for him to handle and he offers her straight up, he offers her 40,000 francs to just leave and she is pissed off at this and honestly I think I would, I, I think I too would be this petty. She threw the money directly back at his crotch and was like fuck this, fuck that, fuck you, fuck off and off she does fuck to Madrid. So she goes to work and she ends up working as a lady's maid to the Countess Marino. And the two of them absolutely despise each other and and she, you know, ends up returning back to France. And the king pardons her a second fucking time because the dueling laws only applied to men. So the misogyny worked in her favour again. And so like, you know, she's had two pardons. She's travelled Europe. She's stabbed a lot of men and she's like, maybe I'll try to settle down. 
also in addition furthermore she even reunites with her husband Sieur de Maupin from way back they're still married she's like hey let's reconcile but she personally within herself is not settled down so she is fighting with other actors she threatens to shoot a duchess attacks her landlord bites you know her old lover Devinal hard enough that he's actually bleeding on stage and she even stabs herself with a real dagger during a stage performance like she goes full method total Johnny Depp and then finally Julie finds someone who makes her feel probably as close to content as she can be. She falls in love with Madame la Marquise de Florensac who was known as the most beautiful woman in France. And according to the accounts of the time, they lived together in perfect harmony and their relationship lasted much, much longer than most of her other relationships, in fairness. And they were together for two years until Florence, she dies from a fever. And out of everything that has happened to Julie Daubigny throughout her life, this, this is the thing that breaks her. So she is inconsolable and she retires from the opera in 1705 and in a crazy random happenstance she takes refuge in a convent in Provence and there she remains for two years when she dies at the age of 33. Shit, that's how old I am. What the fuck? And 33 is pretty young to pass, especially when you're in a convent and we don't know what her cause of death was. Or where she's buried. There is no known grave for her. And it seems like for quite a lot of history, history tried to forget her. And that is the story of Julie Daubigny, the opera singing bisexual badass duelist. So, what did we learn today? We learned that gender nonconformity isn't new. That it's always good to have a talent you can fall back on. Or other people can fall back on too. Grand gestures, like stealing a woman from a convent is only a romantic gesture if you have equal levels of affection and commitment and things like that. If you liked this story um, and or my retelling of the story, please absolutely go on to Apple Podcasts and rate and review five styles and say something about bisexual badasses, sword fights, dueling. Oh man, Jesus. As always, I want to thank everybody, everybody for their podcast reviews. You have no idea. It means so much to me. It actually, it means so much. It's so amazing. And thank you so very, very much. And also, don't forget you can follow me on social media. I'm on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook with Who Did What Now Pod. And on Twitter with Who Did What Now PD. And it is that time of the show again. It is shout out time. I just want to say... A big thank you for been supporting the show and have been just so fucking amazing. So I want to say a big, big thank you to Rachel from Cornwall. Welcome to the Guild of Historical Descent. You're awesome. And I also want to say a big thank you again to the amazing Haley from Niagara Falls. And the links are all in the show notes, but uh, I always feel strange talking about Patreon because it feels strange asking for support to create content even though i need the support to create content and if you want me to thank you at the end of a show uh yeah absolutely just lo- jump onto patreon the links are in the show notes and yeah and now before we go it's time for recommendations i've been reading um 
a book by Ben Hubbard, which is all about poison. Like that's, um, and it's just for research purposes, absolutely. You know, for history stuff, I'm not planning to poison anybody. I, it's, it's for research, I promise. And for my enemies, <laughs> she says on the podcast. Listening to watching, I watched Bo Burnham's Inside, and frankly, I mean, it, it's comedy, but it's, it's comedy in the way that, that, that a mental breakdown is funny, which, which is not usually funny unless you've, you've had one, um, which I think as well when you're watching it is that you need to be like really aware that everything we see is curated. Like it's curated and created specifically for us to view. And I think we need to take that into consideration when sort of absorb, absorb, absorbing this, this content. And um, yeah, and listening. Yeah, I'm, I'm back to small town murder. I just, those boys, those boys help me sleep. Probably really, really weird, but they do, they help me sleep. But anyway, I'm gonna say goodbye and bid you adieu and adios, au revoir, au revoir to them, my friends. Bye-bye. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.